Hello, and may the fourth be with you. Welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that's in everyday technology. This week's episode, we have Lucy Spence on the show. And while Chris, do the honours. Well, Lucy is a product extraordinaire and currently Associate Director for Technical Product Management at Compare the Market. We first met at Love Film over a decade ago and went on to work on the same team in Amazon. Lucy is an experienced conference speaker and we talk about her most recent talk, Decision Supervision, Structured Thinking for Product People from Mind the Product in Manchester 2020, just before the world came to a grinding halt. And we also talk about high-performing teams, the history of the web, and, of course, dogs. That sounds magical. So let's uh, let's get right into it. Here is Lucy Spence. Start by telling us who you are and a little bit about yourself. Who am I? Um, big, profound question. Um, <laughs> in context of this, I think uh, I... I write as a product manager. Um, I've been working, I sort of say, in and around web for 20 years, kind of self-taught, mostly to begin with. Um, You know, back in the day when when there were job titles around like webmaster. Did you start as a webmaster? I had a job before that. I was actually a graduate at a sort of little boutique business IT consultancy and I'd done a degree in design and we needed our website rebuilt and um because we were advising on stuff at the time which was called e-strategy um and we realized our website sucked and no one knew how to build it or what to do or whether you'd go to an agency or anything like that and they kind of went you did design surely it can't be hard go build it (laughs) and four weeks later I'd built the website and then after that, you got to be called a webmaster back in the days when there were webmasters. Yeah, then I got to be called a webmaster. And I think during that phase is when I committed some of my deepest, darkest digital sins, <laughs> um, of which there are many. <laughs> are you still recovering from those digital sins? or? Uh... Oh, I mean... We can turn this into a podcast confessional if you want to. <laughs> oh, I mean, some of the stuff that we were doing back then, I like... I built stuff that was taking credit card numbers. There was nowhere near the level of security that you would need. And I genuinely hope that organisation has moved on from there, which I'm sure they have. Um, but that that sort of stuff where it was just, we're just like, you know, kind of going, how do you do this? And you'd look something up and then you'd try and build it. And there was no, you didn't really have people to learn from. Mm. Or at least I didn't have people to learn from who'd been there and done it. So it was a little bit the Wild West. What sort of uh, what sort of era are we talking here? Uh, that was late nineties. Late nineties, yeah, very much the wild west of uh, pre dot com boom. Yeah, or dot com bubble at the very least, the dot com boom. It was very much dot com bubble, and there was all sorts of interesting and wild ideas about what good looked like, um, which you know we'd look at now and be horrified by, um, and browser wars and all of that sort of fun stuff, but. Yeah. You didn't you weren't suggesting marquees and things like that, were you scrolling text and snowflakes at Christmas? Marching ants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the little dots around text. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I can tell you that like the fir- the first site that I built, I'm so disappointed I don't have a copy of this anymore. It had a little animation intro to the to the company, which lasted for about two minutes and when we launched it didn't have a skip button. 
So you had to wait there for two minutes to watch this thing to then actually get to the website. That lasted two days. It's not on web archive, is it? I know. I think it was in Flash and it like oh. one of the early versions of Flash and I don't think it would be supported anymore, but it was just that sort oh. of, you know, I'd, I'd worked so really hard for like four weeks and I'd done a, a couple of all-nighters. It was probably one of the hardest I'd worked at that stage to build this thing. I was super proud of it and then people hated it. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of been, you know, <laughs> that's the addiction of, of digital. That's sort of been the way it's gone ever since. I think one of my <laughs> first websites was uh, was all in Flash as well, and that had the same sort of, you know, flashy intro, well, literally flashy intro that you could have with all of the the, uh, the shapes, and it would come together to form the logo before eventually you managed to get into the site. That was how I... Uh, that was how I learned to to build websites as well. That was that was late nineties too. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's something I've been thinking about recently. Um, I suspect it's almost as you get older and you start working with people who are earlier in their career and kind of go. And I look back and go, God, what I was doing at that age, there were there wasn't really anyone who kind of knew what you should be doing. Yeah, about that sort of thing, and so it, you know, you didn't have a choice about experimentation. Everything was an experiment. It wasn't a you know well designed or thought through experiment. It was just like a question of can I do this? Does this work? <laughs> Stack Overflow wasn't around. Yeah, and then you then you kind of look at people today, and I think the expectation is so different. You know, there's such a level of sophistication in how we develop stuff relative to I mean we're still there's still lots more we can do but there are so many techniques and mindsets and thinking about it and we talk so much more about you know the, the or the level of sophistication is is so much more and yet there are constraints that kind of come with that that make it harder to to be that experimental and free yeah do you think that that things are locked down an awful lot more. Do you think we're missing something from having all of that locked down? Um, I think, I don't know. I think there's a little bit of ownership and freedom that came from, like you didn't really have stakeholders in this way that you do now because, or at least certainly I didn't, you know, I, I was just allowed to do what I thought was best as the person who was looking after the website. And I, you know, I, didn't actually have to justify much of what I did. And I think now there's there's a lot more kind of, you know, have you seriously thought this through? Have you, you know, it, it's just a more mature profession. Um, you know, have you, before you can kind of propose something, it's like, have you looked at what everyone else is doing? What is best in class? Where are we? Uh, and and the, the bar for just trying something seems to be so much higher. I do think that probably hurts us a little bit um, and it probably makes certain types of people more successful than others. At what point do you think, you, you know, it started becoming more um, becoming more sophisticated? Um, or at least in your experience over, over your career because you've obviously been in quite a lot of different organisations over the time. It depends a little bit on... Um, you know, I think I think there's still a, a vast difference in the level of maturity out there between sort of the the people who are a bit more sophisticated and and the ones who are kind of playing catch up and and potentially 
going through a bit, you know, still trying to go through some of the digital transformation side of things. Um, everyone started taking it a lot more seriously when it started making money, you know, <laughs> um, was really what it was. I, I remember being at, you know, at, at a, a well-known retailer at the time when, you know, the website was kind of considered to be one of their stores and then there mm. was, we had a had a sale and actually on the first day of the sale was the first time that, that the web store had taken more money than any um, any of their actual physical stores. And it was kind of, you know, it was a real shift at that point in time where people were like, oh, okay, it's only one day, but, you know, eyes are on us now. This is important and and we need to invest in this and we need to be a bit more cautious about what we're doing. Yeah, that's the, the point at which it starts to overtake. It starts to move from, from one... The old way, I think, where the bricks and mortar was the was the primary selling target into being, you know, web. I guess that is the point at which people start to take things more seriously. Yeah, it's all it, you know. It, it's it's classic prioritization. You pay attention to to your most punchy things, um, and so yeah, kind of you know, it went quite quickly from being a oh, we've got to play around in this space, and we've got to you know make sure we kind of catch the wave to oh. Ooh, this isn't this isn't just playtime anymore. This is serious stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I um, it's interesting. I, I recently watched I watched your presentation that you did. Um, the um, uh, what's it called? Decision decision supervision. At um, oh, I was so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were very funny. Oh, I'm glad someone thought I was funny. I tried to be. I, I was like, what, "What? Who are these people?" They're, they're like, oh, "I thought you were incredibly funny." I laughed. I'm completely alone. I was laughing to myself. It's great. <laughs> My particular favourite was the puppy poo. Yeah, I, there, there is something special about standing on stage and telling a couple of hundred strangers about puppy poo. <laughs> Career highlight, really. But I thought it was a great talk. I mean, you talked about um, a, a number of things on there. There was things from from Amazon days as well in there. Uh, you talked about FPR FAQs and things like that. Um, yeah. Where did the inspiration for um, for for the obviously you, you have a dog, but where did the inspiration for for the reference to dogs come about? Um, well, I think it, it it actually literally was the kind of going through the the process of like trying to think about how do. You, how do you make a good decision about whether a dog is right for you or not? Um, and I've, I've become sort of increasingly inf- interested in how you make good decisions, I guess, individually and collectively and thinking about that. And some of this, you know, I think there's some really interesting stuff if you look at um, how people make decisions around stocks and shares trading because one of the things about decisions is, most of the time you just end up living with it and you don't know what the alternative is or was and actually but actually in the science of decision making the one that's actually kind of we do get that kind of quantitative feedback and can judge how well or not people are making decisions is probably the stock market because everyone's actually in a very similar position so you can look at some of that and so I'd been looking at some of that stuff but then kind of going now how do I actually apply this to what is a, a big decision it in my life um and one that where I was kind of 
there was a reasonable amount of relationship pressure to proceed down one path. <laughs> and I wasn't convinced that that was a great idea. Um, and so, um, and so I was kind of like trying to get myself to the point where I could go, this is interesting. Or we, we had these conversations back and forth. And so, yeah, that was, that was sort of where it came from. So did you start out with a decision about, um, actually having a dog and then presumably that moved on to type of dog as well? Well, it, it all got pretty mixed up because it was like, yeah, we should get, actually a dog would be nice, but, you know, what kind of dog and is now the right time? And actually, depending on the type of dog, that probably means certain aspects of lifestyle. You know, you have a sedentary dog, mm. you're going to have a bit more of a sedentary lifestyle you get a, a, a different dog and that means other things. And so it, it was kind of, you'd we'd find that we'd go down one particular avenue and then you end up with this sort of, you know, Tibetan Mastiff or something and then come back and go, is that actually really what we want to do? And I was like, hell no, why would we do that? But for some reason there were kind of links along the chain that had led us to the point of thinking that was a good idea. And then you, and so it was kind of, it was quite interesting of the many different levels that we ended up trying to work through. And did you apply some specific decision-making criteria to that then? Uh, did you write a PRFAQ? I did, I did not write a PRFAQ, <laughs> but I mentally I felt like I wrote it and kind of I, I felt like I'd, I, you know, I am sad enough to sit on public transport and kind of start to work through these things and go, well, how would you do it from this perspective? <laughs> um, but I didn't actually put pen to paper on that particular one. Um, for for uh, for the people for the listeners that we've got, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, PRFQ? Are you are you still using PRFQs? Um, I don't at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but so for for anyone listening. Uh, PRFAQ is Amazon's shorthand for a document that's a press release and frequently asked questions, and it's part of the working backwards process. Um, I'd now call it a, a product narrative, which mm-hmm. is a you know where you, where you sit down and describe as if you were talking to customers on the day of launch what it is that they're going to see and experience and why why they would want to engage with that, um, and then you answer a bunch of questions about you know, frequently asked questions that customers may ask or your internal stakeholders may ask, like, why the hell are we doing this? Um, And what are the (laughs) obstacles we have to overcome? And it's a really good way of getting yourself to working through some of the complexity and trying to think through what it is that you actually need to do and whether that solves the problem that you're you're going out, you're, you're setting out to try and fix or the experience you want to deliver or whatever it is like that. I think in terms of my experience of it in other organisations, it's been a bit mixed. Mm. Amazon, I th- because it's kind of built into the culture, it's front and centre, There are there is a particular way of doing reviews and getting feedback and getting input that everyone knows and understands and everyone once you've been through your first one, you kind of, <laughs> you realise the level of um, importance on detail that is there. I think where I've um, 
what I've seen in other places is you go and you put it forward to people and they generally kind of gloss over it and go, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go. Mm. Um, And it doesn't get the level of scrutiny that is what's critical to making it better. Yeah. That's my experience of it. Or people go, oh, I don't need this much detail at this stage. You just work it out. And there's not that same level of engagement. That's certainly been a bit about what I've experienced. And so I think there is a bunch of stuff around the culture that needs to go with it. And it's also very difficult to demonstrate that without having other people that understand it. Mm. You need at least an, at least one former Amazonian ally, I presume. <laughs> yeah, preferably more than that. Certainly, you know, I, I had someone try and do it and then, um, you know, I probably went and I gave feedback um, on it and, you know, we were kind of going, well, look, there are, there are some pretty significant problems we've got to work through here. And actually that killed that entire project and no one's ever picked it up since. And it wasn't that that project needed to be killed necessarily. Mm. It was more a case of these are the things that you're going to need to overcome and so put the time into thinking about it, but it was kind of taken as a, okay, we're putting that on hold. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, <laughs> I mean, Chris, you, you know that you can get some pretty brutal feedback at Amazon, but that doesn't mean yep. that it's not worth <laughs> continuing it just means you've got some challenges to work through yeah i think it can uh, it can either make you or break you i think the um the, the 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 strength of the feedback at amazon um and often both <laughs> and often both at the same time absolutely yes. <laughs> you did a you did a much longer stint at amazon than i did though did you do five years am i right in saying that yeah i was over five years by the end that was tough. How, how did you manage to stay there for that long? <laughs> I, you know, to be honest, I probably broke at various points in time. <laughs> maybe I'm just too stupid to leave. I think you may be just stronger than I was. Um. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, no, I, it, it depends a little bit on what you want to get out of it. Mm. I certainly found that I was learning. I was continually learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I left when I felt that I wasn't actually learning that much more. Um, and it's not that I wasn't learning that much more. It was more there were a variety of circumstances that meant the kind of the next step or the thing that I wanted to explore wasn't going to happen within Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we we were there at a particular point in time in a particular avenue that had a particular culture and I don't think it's the same these days and I don't think that was necessarily throughout everything. You end up with these sort of you know, localised cultures within large organisations. It's very difficult to keep everything the same. Yeah, I understand that 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 is the the case. And obviously um, some of that culture, some of that drive that we had in the video team was heavily driven by uh, the the leader of the video team, right? You know, there were other parts of the organisation that I remember distinctly visiting IMDB who were much more leisurely paced part of the organization yeah yeah i think uh, and you know some of that is around the 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 challenges that you're experiencing you know we were quite a long way behind the industry leader at the time um and had quite a lot of work to do to catch up Mm. um and there aren't that many shortcuts 
Uh, you know. No, no, no. Generally not. I mean, you've got to work through it, right? <laughs> you, you've got to work through it, and you've got a lot of challenges around how quickly any organization can scale and actually remain effective. So, if you're um, not using the the PRFAQ method anymore, you said obviously using things like product narratives. Are there any other techniques that you're using at, the, at this particular moment in time that you know you think are, uh, are particularly strong that you can share with everybody? I think one of I, I was actually reading Marty Kagan this morning and just going something that I've I've recently gone back to myself is and something where I think we've um, where I've been working a little bit recently we've we've ended up doing quite a lot of kind of um, uh, technology upgrades and things like that and have not spent as much time doing prototyping and actually getting into the kind of the interactions and how things behave. And I think that's something that I've noticed depending on the organisation that that is something that I've probably dropped the ball a bit on recently. I think it's quite easy when you've got different teams who are working on different parts of an experience um, and different designers uh, around and not actually working on a kind of a single prototype and or you know a, a section of a prototype and spending more time focusing on the um you know reviewing what it is that you're actually delivering uh, you know i know that um there are really easy pitfalls to get into it's like you know if you're spending more time in powerpoint than you are in front of designs and wireframes and prototypes then you know the balance is kind of wrong in in a product role i think um and that's something I, I, I've caught myself doing that's a little bit of um, organisational culture and certainly I think as you go into more um, senior positions, that's an easy kind of mistake to make and you're getting that kind of, you know, <laughs> you're trying to operate at more strategic level and you're getting involved in different types of conversations and suddenly you're like, oh, actually, what is it that we're actually shipping? Um, and and having those conversations about whether that is good enough or not and whether we can do better. That's kind of, that's the one for me at the moment. That's a really basic, basic kind of one, but it's surprisingly easy to drift on, mm. I've found. And has that changed at all in the sort of, in the virtual world that we now work in? I, I think it has become harder um there are certain things that we do which we can kind of compensate compensate for quite well um in terms of actually those collaboration sessions the thing that i um the thing that i i've noticed that i can't do is that literally walk up behind someone and go what you working on um, and oh that looks interesting and and actually just like looking over people's screens which I confess I kind of love doing, although it sounds really creepy and, and <laughs> not particularly consensual when you kind of just pop up and go, oh, what's that? Is that any good? And it's and there's a kind of, I guess there's a, you know, something that I was becoming increasingly kind of aware of is you've got to be careful about doing that because if you then start giving feedback to a designer just when they're doing stuff on their screen and I, you know I've been in that position as well you start to get a little bit like protective of your screen you're like I don't want people to see what I'm working on because I'm actually working through stuff at the time and I'm not showing you this as I'm not asking for your input mm. at this point in time um 
It's hard though, isn't it? This is a pure curiosity thing, you know. It, it's a real kind of balance, isn't it? Because you're going. I actually, I do want to engage in that. I do, I do want to show that I'm interested in this, and I want to see if there's anything, you know, if we can have a quick conversation that will help in any way, or to just have that feel of what's going on. And I really don't want to distract you or make you feel uncomfortable about stuff, but I also want to just check that, you know, kind of, kind of get closer to it. And yeah, it's that's that's something that I felt. I think you learn the people that you can do it with. Do, do you find it hard to um, not delegate necessarily, but sort of? Well, well, I suppose it, I suppose that is that is what I'm asking. Do you find it hard to delegate to a certain degree to let people just get on with their thing? Because I have this thing where I do want to be involved with everything, and a business partner I'm working with at the moment is trying to help me with, uh, you know, the delegation thing and making sure that I can let people, I can bring someone in to do that work for me. <laughs> The delegation thing, I usually I find that I'm I've got so much kind of work on that I, I I'm quite good at getting myself into this position where I've got like lots of things bubbling away, and so I'm usually pretty happy to give mm. stuff away. the The challenge I have is giving stuff away effectively, being able to provide the right level of context and direction without overriding or without micromanaging and without saying what it is and you kind of again there's a little bit of organizational complexity in there of how close you need to be might be down to how close um how many other stakeholders are providing input to to be able to to shape that because there are a lot of very eager people who who also want to contribute and maybe their contributions are super valuable and maybe they're not quite as valuable and a little bit more unhelpful than they mm. actually think. And so there's kind of being able to <laughs> work out what is the lightest weight way to set people off on the right direction but make sure they'll be able to detect when they're fully, when they're kind of going outside the bounds of the right direction, mm. that's that's what I find challenging. Do you have any particular mechanisms in mind that you that you use to con- to control that level of feedback and that sort of feedback loop? I mean, there are you know there are there are one to you know, you, you have your kind of your one to ones and your conversations with directs. I try mm-hmm. and get the group together. The the thing that I've been working on. Um, personally is doing just a a much better job of connecting the dots with the the strategy and join trying to join teams together and make sure that they're they're in a good place um but it's I wouldn't say I have mastered this one (laughs) I feel like it's something where I feel like I'm continually going Oh, am I am I am I doing this well? I'm not really sure. I, there's a lot of kind of unpicking of some things that need to go on. Of like mm. you kind of you know you go oh actually I think that focus or that action has been given perhaps to the wrong person. Mm. And do they know where it needs to go? You know how we can move that forward effectively. Um, I do find that consumes a large portion of my day, particularly when we're working remotely, it's, you know, it is the kind of bouncing to, from meeting to meeting to, to keep everyone moving in the same direction. 
Um, and by the fact that I'm saying that, <laughs> by saying that I'm doing that meeting to meeting all day, every day, is probably an indication that I'm not doing it very well, if I'm honest. <laughs> I think it's a very hard thing to keep bouncing between meeting to meeting. And I think a lot of people are getting Zoom fatigue at this point, um, amongst other things. But just wanted to return back to the... Um, to the mind the product thing because I, I thought you'd be, you've been doing mind the product for a, a good number of years now. I remember you speaking at mind the product probably back when we were at Amazon as well. I, I've I've spoken at product tanks before, but right. not mind the product, uh, uh, not not at the bigger conference. Yeah. Um, I I quite like doing talks because they they give you an opportunity to reflect mm. and. They, I mean, you can always, the, the great thing about it is they give you this sense of sort of tidiness where you can kind of talk cleanly about something and actually ignore some of the everyday realities and pragmatism. I mean, I do a talk and I go, okay, that's, that, that's, that sounds fantastic. And, yes, they are tools that I do use, but I can also think of, you know, all of the times when I go, oh, I didn't actually think about how I was going to make that decision well. Um, (laughs) So, so, you know, it's a little bit of an ego boost of kind of going, hey, let me present the good version of myself um, and, and, and pretend that I'm like that more than I am. Is that, does that sound really vain? No, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that we all do a little bit of that. Um, (laughs) How how long, um, how long does it take you to put a talk together? Um, that the decision supervision one took a long time. Yeah. Um, partly, I, I kind of it's probably the crispest one I've done in terms of wanting, you know, wanting to kind of have each sentence down. Mm. Um, equally, I've, you know, I I did one presentation. <laughs> many years ago that was probably my most successful one and I'd literally just done the drawings and I vaguely knew what I was going to say and then I went out and got drunk the night before and did it in a really (laughs) hungover kind of all kind of really quite queasy sort of but a little bit drunk and so gesticulating a lot kind of a way and that was probably my most successful talk ever Um, and it was literally like Two hours of drawings. So, which is your preferred way to to approach it then? The structured uh, approach or the, uh, the 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 hungover? <laughs> um, which will you be doing next time? <laughs> the nice thing about the hungover, or to be honest, I think I was actually still drunk. Was I didn't get anywhere near as nervous with that one. Um, but I like, there's a bit more of a creative um, process of pulling a talk together and thinking about the structure and kind of you can refine and be a bit more, um, it, you know, it's a chance to be a bit thoughtful but in a kind of creative storytelling kind of a way um, and I enjoy that process. I, it turns out the half hour or two hours before I talk I absolutely hate and feel like I'm going to die and my heart is nearly exploding from my chest um and I have to take my watch off otherwise my heart rate sensor goes beep 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 beep. (laughs) (laughs) I think everybody gets that before they before they're going on stage but I mean yeah wow I don't know it's that sort of thing where you suddenly go oh I'm having panic sweats and I stink and this is horrible and now I'm about to walk out on stage and it's a really good thing I'm uh 
nowhere near anyone because they, yeah, they'd take one whiff and be like, we don't want to be near that person. Yeah, and this is being recorded as well, so uh, yeah. make sure that you wear stuff that doesn't show the sweat marks. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all, you know, the, make sure you've got the right colour clothing on. <laughs> so how many people were you actually presenting in front of? Because it was in Manchester, wasn't it? It was over a year ago. Yeah, it was a, it was a couple hundred people, I think. Um, yeah. it's a, it looks like a big crowd. Yeah. It, uh, the conference, I think, was... 400, 450 people or something, but they split into various streams mm. at that point in time. So it was it was on the main stage, but it wasn't the full um, cohort. But it was, a, it was a fantastic day. There were a lot of really good talks there. I very much enjoyed it. <laughs> you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned recently on the socials um, that it was the most nervous you've been until recently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> So yeah, so in in uh, what was it in November? It was November. No, it was October. Um, my partner and I had been uh, together for five years. We were celebrating our five year anniversary, and we decided to get married. So we then did the COVID wedding thing in December. Wow! Did you get many people to come along to you? How how did you how did you do a wedding in COVID? I mean, congratulations first off, first off, and then how did you? Thank you. <laughs> um, we had we had a um, a very small group of people who came. Um, I mean, part of the reason was uh, my wife's um, family are in Sweden and my family are in Australia, and we decided this just it was before any of the vaccines had been approved, and so we were kind of like, if we want to get married with family, um, it's probably a couple of years away before we can get everyone together and with elderly parents that was kind of Mm -hmm. you know uh it was a case of do we really want to wait that long it's then we've got to coordinate people in you know three different countries around the world to try and be together at the same time and um that's going to be hard work. So we kind of went. This gives us a bit of an opportunity to do it, to do it uh, quick and um, quick and small and simple. And did the did the dog attend the wedding? No, he didn't. He's a rat bag. He's a rat bag. He, he was, when we talk about that enjoyment of the day, I think we worked out that our enjoyment was going to be significantly <laughs> higher if he wasn't there. Love him to bits, but it wasn't going to be the. Um, the environment in which he would shine. So, so returning to the, uh, the the making good decisions, then yeah, how's how's the dog worked out? <laughs> oh, the dog the dog is brilliant. Um, I mean, he he's a rat bag. Um, it's not a particular breed of dog, of course. The the rat the rat bag. No, no. <laughs> um, he just has some. He's got some behavioural issues. Is he a, is he a whippet? Am I right in that? Is he, he he is a whippet. So he's now he's now what they say for whippets is you have you know two years of hell for then a, a really lovely dog because as puppies they're pretty um, boisterous and mm. and energetic and they do tend to make up their own minds. Um, <laughs> about whether they want to obey you or not. So he's quite well trained in that he knows mm. lots of commands and things like that, but he does consider whether or not he wants to obey or not. It's not that he doesn't know. He just kind of uh, make makes a deliberate decision. 
He makes his own decisions and he doesn't have the same decision-making criteria, presumably. No. Well, he, he's got one. If you've got a gravy bone in your hand, he will do whatever the hell you want. He will be the most well-behaved, attentive, sweet-looking little dog. And if you don't, then hmm, just depends a bit on on <laughs> yeah, whether or not he wants to. He must have a lot of energy, though, I presume, as a whippet. How are you managing that in COVID? <laughs> they do and... They don't, in that they're actually quite floppy. Mm. They're, they're the, what, 40-mile-an-hour couch potatoes, I think they get called. Um, <laughs> as long as he gets a bit of exercise a day, he's pretty good the rest of the time. It's just when he's out and about, he likes barking at other dogs, which is, um, you know, not as much, always as much fun for the other dogs or the other dog's owners. Um, and we keep trying to train it out of him and, to great and and it doesn't always work. <laughs> Did uh, were, were these expected behaviours that you were going to change your lifestyle and decision making process, or are these other things that have evolved uh, over time with the uh, with the personality of the dog? <laughs> there's a bit of a there was a bit of a roll of the dice on the prey drive. Um, some some dogs have a very high prey drive. Some dogs have quite a low prey drive. He's got quite a high one. We've got squirrels that are quite close to the house and the two of those things work quite poorly together. Yeah, I can imagine that, actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, just to return it back to, uh, to, to the tech side of things that we seem to have uh, got away from a little bit, is there, a, uh, is there a tech equivalent for a senior executive of a gravy bone? I have no idea. Um, we just stumbled upon a, a possibility here. Is there... Uh, can we find that one thing that uh, that means that you can get everything that you want as long as you're waving said gravy bone? <laughs> yeah, I, d I, d I don't know what the answer is there. I, d I do know that I, this is the one thing that I probably say that is slightly controversial um, with kind of conventional thinking um, in terms of achieving performance of teams and things like that. And this is going to make me sound terrible. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about my own experience, not the experience of, of teams and things like that. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of literature at the moment about psychological safety and how that's connected to high performing teams. And I think that's fantastic and fully on board with that, except this one thing that's nagging in my head, which is my experience of where I've actually performed the best is where I probably had some of the least psychological safety that I had, you know, that where there was just an expectation of performance upon me that meant that I was never felt never, I never felt safe. Mm. And so I've got this kind of, you know, a, <laughs> don't know if that's the metaphorical gravy bone kind of like how you extract good performance from people I've got this kind of this theoretical knowledge that I want to believe in it feels right it's all the right thing but my lived experience is actually slightly counter to that and that that's not necessarily what has produced the best results from me and so i guess that kind of returns a bit to the um the amazon side of things because that was quite a fear driven organization the video team that we we were in um 
do you think that the, the, some of that fear was what led to it to, to the the amount of product that was developed in quite a short space of time or is that is that when you produced your best work in in your opinion um i think it uh, <laughs> i was trying not to say names but okay go and slap a label on it um i i think i learned more in that environment and i became better in that environment because I wanted to survive in that environment and therefore I had to. Um, so a lot of it is about survival there. It um, is. It was ruthless. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not necessarily going to uh, slag it off. I, I learned an, an awful an awful lot out of, um, out of my time there and it's massively helped my career since, I would say. But, um, but it is tough. It is about survival. Um, but you do learn a hell of a lot as well. Yeah, I think I think when you've got an environment where you're used to, you know, there, there is a sort of, or at least I assume there is, you know, you're continually actively managing people out of the business for mm. lack of performance and uh, or for, for not being, you know, and it's not even that you're not doing your job, it's just that if you're not, you know, within a given grade, you know, in the sort of band of average and above, it's like they're kind of like, well, we could get some, you know, there could be someone better. And so we may as well free up a seat for that. Um, and I think that comes, you know, that's particularly a bit of a US mindset. I think there's sort of European <laughs> regulations um, that, that, that prevent that being quite so um, easy here. But, uh, I'm not going to say it was comfortable, but I'm not. I I think I did benefit from it substantially. Um, Maybe at the cost of my mental health. (laughs) Definitely at the cost of my mental health at various (laughs) points in time. Was it a price I'd be willing to pay? Hmm. Um, Had I known the price I was going to pay for it at various points in time, I don't know. But I. um, But I'd be being dishonest if I said that that was somewhere that I that didn't get that quality of work out of me mm. which is kind of the like I I I I struggle with saying that because it is so counter to the logic and it potentially it could it can easily be interpreted in the wrong way to say that that is the right way to do things I think you could potentially achieve that in a in a more um uh, human friendly way. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely agree with you on that. I mean, I think, um, you know, certainly where the position I was in at at that time, in that time in my life, um, I was definitely responding quite well to pressure. Um, and actually, frankly, putting in, you know, 12, 14 hour days to make sure that something was getting done. It's not something that, I, well, the reason why I only lasted two years, I think I just couldn't continue at the pace that I had, the bar that I'd set my, for myself, I don't think I could have kept up, you know, with the amount of time that I was doing, the amount of uh, effort I was putting in. I think I've been burned out almost ever since. <laughs> I, th- I think there's definitely, you know, you, you learn a bit about yourself being in that situation. I mm. think certain people almost, you know, they, they have a desire to, They'll look for opportunities to do that sort of things to test themselves mm. without 
necessarily understanding what the cost is. Um, I think I found out the cost a couple of, a, a little while later, which was compounded by some personal stuff that was mm. happening in my life. Um, but yeah, there is a you know I, I look at other people who have been in that environment, and there are people you know you'll see people who were you know they were single mm. when we started, and they're still single, and I would be surprised if the hours didn't have a factor in that um you know not saying that <laughs> not not being judgmental about people being single but the kind of you know I know when I was there and I was single it was like a partner <laughs> simply haven't haven't got time to uh yeah. find one or 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 spend the time with and like who would want you when you're spending all your you know, cognitive energies in your work environment and you come home kind of exhausted and just going, I need to, like, not people. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, I think I was, I mean, I was lucky that uh, my girlfriend stayed with me and eventually married me um, through that period of, of being at Amazon because it was just so all-absorbing. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's generally designed for single people, I would say. At the at least at the uh, the doing end where we were at the time, I guess. Yeah, I think I think there is you know something that I I've been thinking about more. I certainly mm. wasn't particularly structured in my career early on. I sort of said I just want a variety of experiences and I'll work it out as I go. Um, I'm now reading. You know, there, there's some really solid advice around. You know, actually, if you want to, you know, develop your career early on um what are the things that you should look for and and stuff like that and the, the, you know i read those articles now kind of going oh, 20 years in is is it too late for me to, <laughs> to to think about this in an intelligent way and and think about the kind of leverage that you can apply but um which bits do you think you've missed out on if you were going to do it again what what would the what would the because you've got quite a wide range of experience what would be the bits that you would uh, you would want to go and pick up on I read something, and this is bad because I'm not going to be able to attribute it to anyone, but I thought it was a really sensible sort of breakdown of what are the things that you should think about early in your career if you want to be successful. And this is probably more so around tech than and than many other professions or, or in and around tech. And it was things like... Um, try to look for an industry where the industry is growing um, and the industry is is on the upward path because it doesn't mean, you know, it's really hard to pick the company that's going to win. But if you can pick an industry that's mm. um, developing, even if you don't pick the company that's going to win, you're going to be expanding, you're going to be growing. That's actually a pretty easy, that means there are continually if if your company is expanding there are going to be continual growth and stretch opportunities for you to go into and so you will you know you're not having to do that jump from company to company or wait for a vacancy to become available in a static size of company and that was something that I don't think I'd really thought about is actually growing companies present more opportunities mm -hmm. for upward travel you know if if that's what you're 
career ambitions are. And then it was things like, you know, make sure you're building a network of people who are going to different companies and using those conversations. Because invariably we go out and we catch up and we have a drink at the pub or we talk to people and half the time we talk about work. So, you know, make sure that the people that you're <laughs> friends with and talking to like that as they go off and do things are are building your knowledge of the world and, and presenting you with more opportunities. And the other one that I think took me uh, far too long to realise is um, who you work for is hugely influential and finding a boss who will sort of promote you, sponsor you, develop you and and support you um, is is a big factor. So those, those are, I think, you know, I think now I've got a reasonable network of people um, always looking at expanding it, but I probably, it's probably not something that I need to actively go out and do at this stage. I think I'm at a point where I've probably, you know, the right boss is actually really important for me right now because as you become more senior, the the nature of the role changes in terms of the focus of where you're looking and what you need to do. And so each role is quite different. And so having a guide through that and having the kind of the organisational sponsorship um, is is really important to being successful. And, you know, growing industries are fun. Yeah. So, I mean, as a, as a, a leader in, um, in compare the market now, how are you, um, all of the, the sort of high performing teams, stuff that we've talked about, and obviously the psychological um, pressures of places like Amazon, how, have you, how are you applying the good aspects to the roles that you're, the role that you're doing now? The thing, one of the sort of on a on a personal basis, I think the thing that I try and do is one of the advantages I've got is this is something like my fourteenth job, um, and in many of those jobs I've had multiple managers, and so I think one of the things I've got is a significant exposure to different uh, management styles mm-hmm. and bits of advice, um, and I try very much to kind of pass on that learning to people um it's a bit of a it, it's a bit of a balancing act or at least of what i what i try and think about and potentially need to work on is that balance between coaching versus sort of mentoring and imparting knowledge and kind of going okay you know this is this is how it's done so i i try to explain a lot of kind of of, of context and how it works in different places um, and what the reason why things work in some organisations and not others. Um, I sort of touched on, I, I try and think about alignment a lot and how do mm. we, you know, how do we move forward as a business? There are some quite big challenges we've got and lots of people going in lots of different directions and lots of great ideas, but more than we can execute on. So how do we get to to going um, together in the same direction. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I think o- occupies my time. And so how do you find that? How, how do you strike that balance then between sort of mentor, mentorship, coaching, managerial stuff? Do you, do you have a, 
how do you feel your way through that scenario? Do you do you have something that's structured, or do you um, how do you feel your way through it? Um, <laughs> it's very much a feel your way mm. through it. Um, I know I bias to the towards the what I probably kindly call mentoring mm. type thing. Um, I don't know whether that's just ego kind of going, oh, <laughs> let, let me let me be the oracle of wisdom or something <laughs> like that. And I always feel that that's probably how I'm coming across and it's probably quite annoying for various people. Um, I'm trying to do more coaching. Um, but I think what, one of the things that I, I think about coaching, coaching is fine if you're trying to get more out of people and they already know how to do something and you're trying to get them to stretch further. If it's someone's trying to do something for the first time and they've not been in that environment or a process has changed or something like that, it's not necessarily very helpful to be, well, it I was going to say it doesn't help to be coached through it. It depends a bit on your definition of coaching. Mm. Um, we think a lot about coaching as the asking questions, the self-reflection and that sort of stuff, which is not quite the same as a sports coach. And so it's the kind of there's the psychological coaching versus the sports coach. And the sports coach actually sets exercises, sets training regimes and says, you know, you need to do this in order mm. to achieve that outcome. Um and I kind of, you know, there are times I know where I've been in my career where I've gone to my boss and gone, can you help me do this? And then they've asked me questions. And I'm like, I don't need you to ask me questions about this. I need you to tell me the answer. I've tried to get there and I can't. And please, can you stop asking me questions? Because I am not receptive to this at all. Um, I obviously don't behave like that anymore at all, ever. <laughs> no. Um so it's it's kind of going, where do we think this person is? Is it something where, you know, there's a connection that they just haven't made that I need to get them to make and it's going to be stronger if they make it for themselves? Or are they in a bit of a dark room and they just need the light switched on for them and that's actually going to make it a lot easier? Um, and and, and which, which is it? And I'm also finding that you can, you know, you can... Sometimes we, you know, we dance around things a little bit, you know, actually toughening up those conversations. And I say toughening up, I just mean, you know, not dancing around it and just saying it, saying things as it is, as you observe them, No, not applying any judgment to that, but kind of saying, hey, I've seen you do this. Mm -hmm. I think this is the outcome that you're achieving. Is that actually what you want? If not, okay, let's talk through it. And actually just, just being a bit... Um, I think being clearer through being less delicate about mm. some of that stuff. Is some of that you think about being maybe a bit more human than the sort of the Amazon model? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's all radical candor stuff. You, you've fundamentally got to know what someone is trying to achieve and mm. what they want to achieve and and what's going to resonate with them. It would be nice to be able to do that with everyone, but it's difficult. We don't always, you know, we could try as we might. Not all colleagues are going to be like, "Yeah, you're my bestie," and that's difficult as well. When when uh, when when you very much hit up against something where it's not that scenario, I guess there's all sorts of different types of people you have to deal with. The ones that hate you are definitely the hardest ones to work with. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> um, 
don't know. I hope I haven't got too many people who hate me. Well, I mean, I think we all like to think of that. I've had one person who outwardly told me that they hated me. That was nice. Um, Very difficult to deal with. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there there are times where you kind of go, actually, is this where we can get to a a Mm. workable agreement or do we need to think about, you know, maybe putting a bit of distance in that relationship? Yeah. Well, that's when it comes back to more fact-based stuff, I guess, isn't it? Okay, well, we've got to yeah. get through it, so let's uh, yeah. let's just figure out how we do this. <laughs> how do you how do you go about applying data driven decision making to making your product choices and helping people to interpret data to make the right product choices? Um, oh, I get so petty about some data about whether our sample sizes are big enough and whether it's natural variation or whether it's statistically significant. That's not really generally advisable. But I read a book on statistics, and so it sometimes just pops out. Um, um, no, I, I get a bit geeky about that stuff. Well, I think that's good learning, though. Tell us more about that. Sorry, it sounds so glib. I read a book on statistics. Um, <laughs> there is a level of statistical rigor which I very rarely see applied to interpreting data most of the time because people just aren't aware of it, you know, in terms of kind of looking at things like before and after analysis and people like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. And it's like you've got this wavy line that's bouncing around. There's a, you know, a line and say, we launched on this date and, you know, and it it waves around after that as well. But you're not kind of going, well, actually, what's that? What's what does that normally look like in a during a static period when we're not changing anything? How much natural variation is there, and uh, is there separation between that, or are we just getting lucky with the average? You know, the average before and after is above or below because they were never going to be exactly the same. That kind of stuff is where I get a bit pernickety because um, I think we often interpret nothing to either be good or bad. Um, and without that, we often go hunting ghosts because something's dropped, but it's actually still within the range of what's normal. It's just that, you know, week on week, it looks like it's down. Um, how do you how do you go about setting that up in the right way then? Is some of that about creating a good baseline that you know that you're working from? There's some stuff in statistical process control, Um uh, it's lean six sigma stuff uh, mm. uh, is where I encountered it. it was statistical process control and the Western electric trend detection, um, which just looks at, you know, for a number of, for any given number of data points, you work out what the, what the standard deviation is. And then there are some rules about how many are one, two or three standard deviations away from the norm um and and it can kind of say you know all things being equal this is where we think you know these are the trigger points that would tell us that something has changed in this um and it's it, it's not exact but it's an it's another uh technique that you can apply to say actually we think something has fundamentally changed here or actually possibly haven't it's not great on sort of general trends but that's going that's going down a little bit of a a, a rabbit Warren. Um, well, how often do you find that people are actually applying these sort of techniques correctly or actually even understanding that data? Because obviously you've just, you've, you've skimmed the surface there, but you've gone relatively deep with standard deviation. Yeah. I, th- I think <laughs> um, like data is really hard. Mm. Um, knowing 
you know, having a really good understanding of how the data is collected, what the data actually means, whether it's error-free, and then interpreting changes. You know, we're measuring more and more stuff. Um, and so it's a bit, it, you know, there are a lot more data points out there. And what I do tend to find is that the people who are very good at the sort of analysis, the statistical analysis side are not necessarily always as aware of how that data is being collected or the experience that's actually being delivered by it. Um, and so you get people kind of, you know, you get people tagging stuff up or kind of interpreting um, different events in different ways and you're kind of like making, getting that common understanding going, okay, this is actually what happens that triggers that event or triggers that particular piece. And so if we're looking at it, you know, we need to look at it in context of this, that, or the other. Those, those are, I think, the challenging things to do. Most people have the tools these days to access the data. It's just understanding it both in terms of what does that data mean in reference to all of the other data points we've got or the, the other relevant data points that we've got and what does that mean in terms of the um, scope of things or, or the, how, how it affects the experience. So how do, how do you use the data then to to um, to develop a new product or to develop a product? Um, well, it's sort of it. You know, through through discovery, you tend to start off with very qualitative data, and you just you know you're progressing through, and as you as you uh, gain confidence, you're you're doing that transition of getting more sort of almost switching over from the qualitative to the quantitative data mm. to the sort of, you know, the the, the more mature product where you're doing optimization stuff and then you're getting down into, you know, refined MVT optimization type activities. And there's that just that flow through from discovery to delivery and whether or not the types of, the types of data that you're using are reflective of the stage that you're at. Hmm. So from early experimentation into the maturing yeah. of that product. Okay. And um, do, uh, returning a little bit to what we talked about at the, the start of the conversation with being a, an early webmaster and being able to experiment with, you know, a wide variety of things. Now that we have, you know, this sort of tuning, this playing on data and uh, and interpreting things, do, do we lose a little bit of that um, that creativity or does it help it? Does it does it foster that creativity? It's a component of, you know, if, if I think about the things that you see people doing of kind of going, actually, we can, you know, we can manage connect designers and product managers to, to actually be able to start doing like, you know, create live experiments with various different things depending on how, well you're able to prototype stuff and put stuff into production and closing that gap you you get more of a play and you get more safety through being able to have that you know really fine-tuned um well-defined view so that uh, of data so that you know are we damaging anything are we not and you've got that you know really short feedback loop it does free up that level of experimentation um but that requires 
a lot of the right things to be in place. Um, and when you don't have all the right things to be in place, it can be difficult because you're like, oh, hang on, how quickly is it going to take us to get these answers and do we have to do more work to get all the stuff in place so that we can do it? So there's a bit of a, you know, it's a it's a kind of leverage factor of if you're in a good place, you can you can do a lot more experimentation. If you're still trying to get to that place and haven't quite got the tools that will allow you to do that or haven't quite got everything bedded in, it it can take longer to get there. Mm-hmm. Um not sure whether that's a really helpful answer. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I think it is. You know, it's it's um I guess we're probably we're probably just as free to experiment. I guess it's just there's a bit more rigor these days. I guess around having the right sort of data and um, yeah, making cleverer decisions. Probably, I, th- I think it's a case of if you're going to experiment, you want to be able to answer a pretty robust set of questions about those experiments mm. um, to ensure you know. And the more radical the experiment, the more you know, the more safety you kind of want on that mm. um rather than just doing it to see if we can <laughs> yeah i mean it's software you know we we kind of know we can do most things these days it's it's will people do people want us to though that's the much harder thing i think that's a very good uh that's a salient point on which to end <laughs> do, do people want it that's the question um well Thank you very much for your for your time, Lucy. It's Thank been uh, lovely to talk to you again.